Every genre of photography has its challenges, but I have to admit the greatest respect for sports photographers. Their ability to consistently produce amazing photographs, not only of a single event, but stellar photographs year after year, is something I greatly admire. And when it comes to photographers like today's guest, Bill Franks, their ability to produce quality images over decades is nothing short of humbling. This Sports Illustrated photographer who has produced memorable images of sports events including the Super Bowl and the Olympics is an example of how photography is more than just about the equipment one uses, but it's also about a fine combination of artistry, passion, and persistence. Bill, welcome to the Candid Frame. Hey, it's really nice to be here. Yeah, when I had a chance to meet you last year, I, d I definitely had you on my list, and it took me a while to finally get around to it, so I really appreciate you making time out of your busy schedule to, to speak with me. Oh, man, it's it's my pleasure completely. We have we have some great mutual friends who have spoken so highly of you, and, and uh, you know, there was a, a film that you did, a short film, I guess about three and a half minutes talking, you know, you were on a swing set and you were in a dark room and mm -hmm. Marco Torres showed it. And I was looking at it and I said, wow, this is really, really genius. This, I love how in three minutes he explained his whole transition from playground to artist to playground artist all the way through. And it was, was it called Into the Darkness or Out of the Darkness? Is that right? Into the, I think into the light. I into think. the light. Yeah. Into the light. Yeah, and uh, and I realized that was a very early effort for you, but I could see then just just from just from that three three and a half minute little piece, I thought, well, I need to know this guy because he's got a really nice vision. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Well, I've, I've been a long admirer of your work, and in trying to think of how to start this, I, I was reading a, a lot about you, and one of the things that struck me is how much you talk about how much you love this, what you do. And there's a lot of talk about passion, but one of the things you say is that if you want to be able to do this as a life, you really have to love it. And I thought that would be a real great point to start our conversation. So what do you mean about love? Because I think you're saying something differently from just being passionate about it. It's a bifurcated answer. You know, I, I I view this as a very long race. This isn't a sprint. This is a marathon for me. I'm, my vocation and my avocation are basically completely intertwined. And I like images. I don't just like mine. I like mine and yours. And, you know, I mean, I, somewhere in my office, if you could see over my shoulder, there's a bookcase. And I, I have probably, it's a, it's a big bookcase. I have somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 photo books, I'm guessing, maybe more. Oh, wow. You know, I study constantly. You know, I mean, I, I'm formally educated, college degrees from a few different universities, but I also have an informal education process that continues on a daily basis. I mean, I dedicate one hour a day to studying just the technical aspects of what's changing. I'm doing a lot of more DSLR things now, and I'm trying to get fully vested in the softwares. Uh, there's always new equipment coming on. And then I spend another pretty good chunk of time seeing what people are doing out there, you know, what different publications are doing with things, what are my favorite photographers and videographers and cinematographers and writers, what they're doing. And then I spend some time, as, as you said, you read about me, I read about anybody I want to work with. And so I spend, 
uh, probably two to two and a half hours every single day doing some sort of research. And I try to divide it up between technical and practical, if you will. Some of that's pride, some of that's commitment. But if you don't enjoy that kind of an ongoing study, if you're not interested in some of doing some of these things just because you love it and you're motivated by it and you feel it and it completes you, then I think that you're going to struggle because the, really, the people that are really interested in this are, are going to be doing the same thing I am. They're really wanting to do it. So if all things are equal and I have the same exact amount of talent as somebody else and I work at it 120 hours a week and they work at it 40, it's hard for them to stay in the same place I'm at. Yeah. And I don't think you can, I mean, there may be some people that can do it just out of drive, but I think you have to have that passion fueled by something. And for me, it's the love. It's the love of the image. It's the love of the communication. If you ask anybody that travels with me how hard it is to get me to walk past a bookstore or a magazine rack, <laughs> and the amount of mobile devices that we have here that, it, I mean, I was just on Joe McNally's website when we started this interview looking to see what his latest blog post is. I'm looking at Joe McNally. I'm looking at Dave Black, Scott Kelby, you know, and it's, that's, those are three fairly diverse guys. They're not talking about the same material there. There's a lot of people whose work I like to look at, and that's where the love comes in. It's, it's, a, it's a passion about imagery. I, yesterday, I wanted to write a quick note to Howard Schatz, and I slipped onto his website, and he has some new things posted. So I ended up staying for an hour. Oh, you know, wow. You know, I mean, he's, it, you know, HowardSchatz.com. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, and his photography is just, it's superb. And his images are, are images that he creates. It's not a, you know, like a lot of the things that I do, I see, and then I, I capture them. You know, it's, it's all, he builds them in his mind. You know, he, he sees it soup to nuts, start to finish. And it's a pretty astounding process to watch. The second half of it, and I wasn't sure which quote you were referring to when you started, I think that one of the most important things for a photographer to do, to be successful, particularly a photojournalist, you have to have the ability to fall in love every day if you want to be a successful photographer. You must draw a lot of inspiration from watching athletes who are at the peak of their physical condition striving to be their best because I think they, in their own way, love what they're doing and they throw so much of their lives, their time, uh, their passion into that. So talk about being witness to that in so many different ways over the course of your career and how that impacts what you do as a photographer. Anytime you see somebody pay homage to their naturally given talents and they, through perseverance and dedication and education and work, manage to elevate their game, whether it's Peyton Manning, who I've had the privilege of knowing since he was a high school-aged quarterback, to, the, to being maybe the finest quarterback to ever play the game. You know, I've watched Peyton grow and prosper and change. And it's always came back to the same thing with Peyton. He works hard. I mean, he's got skills. He's from NFL royalty. His, his father, Archie, was a great quarterback. His younger brother, Eli's terrific. His brother, Cooper, was a really good receiver in high school and, and at the start of his college career. And I know that, that he's got a lot, of, Peyton's got a lot of gifts. But the most important thing, I believe, in watching Peyton, what I take away from it is how hard he works. I've seen his footwork from the time he was young until now. He probably has 
the finest mechanics of any quarterback playing the game. And I don't think that when he picked up a football, he just had the inspiration to do that. I know he didn't. He spent time with tape. He spent time with his dad, with other quarterbacks, with coaches, David Cutcliffe. He's worked at it, and he understands every offense that he sees. He understands every defense that he sees. He understands how to make decisions with 80,000 people screaming. So what I take away from watching Peyton isn't his grace under pressure or the fact that he's got a magnificent throwing arm or that he wins a lot or that he breaks records. What I take away from watching Peyton is how hard he works at his chosen craft. He invests everything into it, his heart, his soul, his body, his mind. It's all laid out there every time he does it. And trust me, if you watch him practice, he does the same thing in practice he does in the game. He brings that intensity that fervor, that dedication to everything he does. Let's go to another end of the spectrum. Really fortunate last year to spend some time with Ted Kuzer. Ted's 71 years old, doesn't throw a football very much, I don't think. But what he does is write and draw and create and tell stories. Ted, I think he was 66 when he won his Pulitzer Prize for poetry. He was the Poet Laureate of the United States. And for 40 years, he worked in the insurance business, but he would get up every morning at five in the morning and he would spend, well, he still does. It wasn't, I mean, but that entire time he would get up every morning and write or draw or create something intellectually every morning before he went to work at another job. Can you imagine? And then he ends up at the end of all this, I mean, When he writes, these are simple words from a plain-spoken man, but when you read it, it's just absolutely breathtakingly stunning. He works in a small town called Dwight, Nebraska. I don't know what the exact population is, but I guess it's a little under 125. And you go in there, he's got an office that used to be a different kind of a store that he's just dedicated to the craft of poetry. The sign on the front says something like, you know, poetry created and repaired. And he's just a wordsmith. He's a visionary. And he's, it's just, that's what I get from watching this. I get it from, it could be from Peyton Manning, who's right now the, the talk of every sports program in America, to Ted Kuzer, whose fame is different, not any less, but, but different. And, and they go about it in very different fashions. But what you get from it is that these are people that work really, really, really hard at what they do. Same thing with, with chefs. If you've ever spent time around somebody that can really cook, they're at the market at 4.30 in the morning getting the right materials to make the products that they're going to prepare for their audiences 16 or 17 or 18 hours later. You know, and I think that, that whole idea really speaks to what you've been able to do for all these years. It's, I think people are often preoccupied with the moment that you release the shutter and the equipment that you're, you're using at the time, thinking that that's really the determining factor. But I think you're speaking about all the preparation that leads to that moment because you shoot sports that are over in, in a couple of minutes sometimes. And so it's all the work that you put in even before you arrive that really allows you to rise above all the competition and sustain a career for as long as you have. Well, I think that's right. And I, I, I would contend that that goes with any photographic exercise. I mean, 
probably 30 to 40% of my professional work is sports. Those things happen in front of the camera at a faster speed. But for every situation, the preparation is what makes the difference. I have a vast amount of equipment that I've accumulated over the years. And I've always invested heavily in having the things that I need. But, you know, I don't take every single lens to every single shoot. I think about it the same way a painter picks a brush or a color or a material to paint on. I want to know what I'm going to do before I get there for the most part. I need to be prepared. A person's moving faster than the other person on the planet. I don't have time to make a decision about what lens I want to use after the fact. I have to do everything I do in real time. And that really goes for portraiture too. Pretty much every discipline in photography, with the exception of certain controlled still life things, I would contend you have to be ready to make the picture when it happens. Street photographers, absolutely. News photographers, portrait photographers, you might not get that look more than once or twice. If you look at somebody's contact sheets and you go through it, you have to be prepared so that when the penultimate moment presents itself, you're good to go. If you have to stop and think about, oh, what do I want the F-stop to be? What do I, how do I make this camera function work? You're lost. It's done. You have to be ready to go. And you need to know about the person's personality. Or if you're shooting a, a picture of a landscape and you need a certain light situation or there's going to be a storm or something happens to give you that exact correct piece of detail, I mean, you have to be ready for every single thing you do. You started off as a photojournalist. So you were doing a lot of like spot news, feature stories, portraiture, as well as sports. What do you feel that that training provided you that allows you to excel with the work that you're doing now, especially with the increased productions of multimedia that you're doing? Newspaper training was phenomenal. First of all, when I started at newspapers, I was fortunate to be surrounded by a tremendously talented group of photographers. You know, we printed in a common darkroom and we shared information. I really only had two newspaper experiences. I did an internship at the Topeka Capital Journal, and then I worked at the Miami Herald. When I was interning at the Capital Journal, Chris Johns, who's now the executive editor at National Geographic, was a staff photographer. Jim Richardson, who's one of the best landscape, nature, people photographers working in the world today, also a National Geographic guy was there. Rich Clarkson was a director of photography. After Topeka, he had he went to Denver for a while, and then he went to the National Geographic as director of photography. Damien Strohmeyer was our lab tech. He's Sports Illustrated staff photographer now. I could go on. Eric Lars Bakke was there. He's extraordinarily talented sports photographer working in Denver. Whenever you do one of these lists, you always run the risk of leaving somebody out that you don't want to. Phil Schurmeister, who's another contributor to National Geographic, was on the staff. Charles Kogod, who's now a picture editor at the National Geographic, was on the staff. So you can see, I mean, the preponderance of the people that were there at the same time I was, and I was only there briefly, all went on to careers at the National Geographic. And getting to work around them and learn was phenomenal. At the Miami Herald, Carol Guzzi, Michael DeSille, I mean, between them, they have about 49 Pulitzer Prizes. Joe Albert, who's possibly the finest picture editor ever to work in, in newspapers, was our boss. So many talented people around you. And, and I think that, again, more than anything, I don't, you know, you, you need to learn from the other photographers. They can help you with their vision, with their thoughts, with their drive, with their passion, with their intensity. And everybody I mentioned on that list had all of those things. They were all, you know, world-class photographers. And I had a chance to study with them. I mean, 
how great is that to be going to a workshop every day when you go to work? <laughs> Not only that, you know, when you're at the newspaper, I had access to getting to work with Gene Miller was a writer that I worked with regularly at the Herald. Two Pulitzer Prizes for investigative reporting. Edwin Pope, one of the two or three finest sports columnists ever. Joe Starita, Scott Price are both noted authors. Maddie, Madeline Blaze, John Katzenbach, those are both names you know from their movies and their Pulitzers and their books and their projects. Just the infusion of ideas from the talent around you. You know, if, if I spent the next 40 minutes, I could just name the people that have been major influences to me. And at Sports Illustrated, of course, Heinz Klutmeyer, Walter Yost, John Beaver, Peter Reed Miller, Al Thielmans, Damien, who I mentioned a minute ago, David Clutho, all really great. And one of my classmates from Arizona State, a guy I've known since I was 17 years old, John McDonough. You know, we've both been on staff. We've either been contractor staff photographers together for more than 25 years at Sports Illustrated. John has to be the best basketball photographer in the world. And it's funny that I define him that way because there was one point in time when John could have evolved into one of the finest feature or portrait photographers because he's so precise, so analytical. He's got such brilliant vision. He chose to, to focus most of his work on basketball, and he's absolutely the best at it. That doesn't mean his other work isn't stellar because it certainly is. Everything he does turns to gold. And, and that's the point. You, know, you, you learn from everybody around you. And that's what newspapers did. That's what being a staff photographer has helped me with. And, and so many of those people are known for their storytelling, whether they're shooting sports or they're doing other work. It's their ability to be able to tell a story either in a single image or in a photo essay that really makes them great. And I see that in so much of the work that, that, you're, that you're doing. So talk to us about that idea of how important story is, whether if it's the story of a, of a sport event or of just one particular person who you're documenting? Well, for me, storytelling, that's what I try to do. If somebody calls me a sports photographer, I'm not offended. I mean, I'm a staff photographer at Sports Illustrated, so of course I am. But more than that, I think I'm a storyteller. I want to share as much information as I can over multiple platforms to as many viewers or readers as I can. That's a really complicated question you're asking, but bottom line is I want to share as much information as I can about any subject that I have. It's the new things like the Apple iPad allow me to do more than I've ever been able to do. I can combine still photographs with high-resolution video and audio content, and I can package it in an infinite number of ways and multi-purpose it across all these different kinds of outlets, a, a gallery wall, a newspaper page, a magazine page, a webcast, a podcast. I can have it show up on a smartphone. It can show up on an e-reader. It can show up on a computer on the web. Traditional, any of the, tra- the traditional, non-traditional publishing, I want to take advantage of all kinds of platforms. If I'm going to invest everything I can in something, I want to show the material I'm creating to every person that would like to see it. Mm. And so that's important to me. Plus, you get to disseminate more information. And if you have it, then why wouldn't you want to? Yeah. Well, one of the stories that came earlier in your career, which I still, I think he still holds a lot of importance to you, is that of uh, the photo study they did on Missy Coke. Mm. And the fact that 
it's a job that you started, or a photo essay that you started years ago, but that's still on your site. I think that that's a really valuable story, not just in terms of the story you got to tell, but because of the relationship that you have with her. For people who have not had the chance to see it yet, why don't you tell us a little about that and why that story is still so important to you, even though you, the very first frame you shot of it was years ago. Missy Cook, is, she's just a wonderful woman. I've been using the word blessed a lot, but it absolutely applies to my relationship with Missy. I've known Missy since we were both really pretty young people. I was in my first newspaper job at the Miami Herald, and one of Missy's roommates was a really close friend of mine. And I spent time, you know, hanging out at their apartment, just doing social things. Because I think when I met Missy, I was 24 and Missy was 21. So we were right there. We're at the same age, basically. You know, I was a graduate student age and she was, she was a senior in college. And so I photographed Missy just hanging out with her friends. And not unlike today, everywhere I went, I had a camera. And so I was frequently at the University of Miami making feature pictures and sports pictures for the Herald. And when I'd when I had downtime, I'd, I'd see Missy or Mandy or Beth on campus and we'd, you know, hang out. When I found out that Missy had a problem with her foot, I didn't really know what to say. You know, I mean, I really enjoyed Missy and I felt bad, but I didn't understand the ramifications of it. I didn't know, you know, anytime any one of your friends is going to have a surgery or something, you're, you're concerned. But I didn't understand the severity of it. And so I went and I talked to Missy and said, hey, how you doing? And she was struggling with it a little bit. She didn't know what it meant either. But she said, you know, Bill, it's cancer. And I didn't realize it was cancer until she said it. And I was just dumbfounded by it. I mean, three of my four grandparents had, had already died from cancer. And so, you know, I paid a special personal attention to that. So we talked a little bit. And I asked her, I said, Missy, or, you know, basically... I just said, before you lose your leg, do you want to make some photographs of you as you are? And I hope I said it with a little bit more charm than I just did now. But that's essentially was the message. I said, do you want me, do you want to do some photographs of you? You know, because Missy was a terrific athlete and she, you know, had a, had a, a model's physique and figure and she looked great and she'd worked hard to look great. And I wanted to make some pictures of her before the surgery. It's because you knew that take, you take off a foot or a leg or something, then obviously those things are going to change. You don't know what's going to happen, yeah. but you know there's going to be change. So we did those pictures as friends, and while we were talking about it, Missy has a, a deep spiritual, religious background, and she's a very giving, caring, sharing individual. And we were both just kind of talking, you know, about, you know, what this all meant and why it would happen and how it could have happened and just everything. And Missy said, I wish there was a way that I could help other people that are going through this too, because I am so young and I've, it's going to be a long road. And I know that. And, and so we started talking about it and I decided that maybe the right thing to do would be to do a story for her on her for the newspaper. And I went back and I talked to some of the editors. I talked to Gene Miller and Gene, who is, he's the two-time Pulitzer winning writer I mentioned before, said, you know, why don't you talk to Steve Sternberg? He's our medical writer and maybe he'll be interested in doing the piece with you. So I talked to Steve and he said, you know, there's a really good chance this won't end well. And I said, yeah, 
you know, I don't know what the right ending is. I mean, you know, what's the best case scenario? They're not going to, they're not going to be able to, at this point in time that, that, which was, you know, this is 1984, I think, you know, a long time ago. So cancer remedies weren't as advanced as they are now. And, you know, even if you weren't talking about Missy not being with us, even if you're just talking about her losing her leg, that's not a happy solution. We wanted to make sure that Steve was particularly concerned that if we invested months of time with her and the story was not as positive as we would all want it to be, that that would be difficult for Missy to have to see it in print. And so we went and we spent time with Missy and her family, her mom and her dad. And, and Steve was, he was strong in, in his, uh, in his discussion with her. And he just said, look, there's a chance that this may not be a happy ending. What do you think? And they said that they were prepared for that, but they were sure that it was going to be a good ending. Missy was particularly strong about that. You know, Steve and I talked and he said, well, I'm in if you are. And I said, yeah, absolutely. There's no question for me. And we talked to our editors because, you know, it's, it's like anything else to be able to spend time with this story with Missy. We had to be away from some of our other assignments from times and we had to devote a lot of, of emotional and physical energy to doing it. And I spent way more time on the story than Steve did. I was with Missy, I don't know, 100, 150 days during that year at least. Mm. We followed her. And, and that's, that was completely a natural and appropriate. I mean, Missy and I were friends. Steve was a writer that did a great job that I introduced into the project. But by the time he spent some time with Missy, they became friends. But when I started the project, I was already Missy's friend. Bottom line was the editor on the project was a young Miami Herald editor named Gene Weingarten. And Gene was rough and tumble and sarcastic and funny and really whipped this thing into shape. And it's interesting because whenever he was making his line corrections, I thought, wow, he's, he's really good. He's, you know, I don't know why he's being an editor. He should, he should be writing. And he said that he was occasionally. Well, Gene's now won two Pulitzers for feature writing <laughs> in the, <laughs> the Washington Post. And, and it was it's just interesting, you know, because sometimes when you, you talk to me, you just know. I mean, the guy was clearly brilliant. In any case, Gene packaged this whole thing up, and, and it ran on, the Christmas, on Christmas Day in Tropic Magazine, which was the Miami Herald's Sunday supplement. And they gave us the entire magazine, including a wraparound cover. It was the only story in the magazine, and I think it was 36 pages. I could be wrong about that. Wow. But they devoted the entire magazine to the piece, and the response was overwhelming. Missy ultimately ended up having more than one surgery, having parts of her leg removed. But she not only persevered, but she triumphed. And she met and married a composer named Todd Billingsley, who's at the time a musical director at a church. And Todd's a rock. When you look at the, 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 the work that's online, you know, Todd just wrote a book about Missy. He's written, when they got married, it was really cool because he wrote, her real name isn't Missy, it's Meredith. And he wrote a, a musical tribute to her that they played the wedding called, I think it's called Fanfare for Meredith. <laughs> he had an mm. orchestra come in and play it for him in a choir. It was just, it was, it was one of the great tributes I've ever seen at a, at, of one person to another, but especially at a wedding. Anyway, they have three adopted kids. They, uh, they're, they've just moved back to the United States now. They live in Pennsylvania, but they were living in Rome for a while. And, Missy and I have always stayed in contact. And after it had been 25 years, I was going to be in Germany and I had been talking to Missy on the phone and I said, Hey, why don't we catch up? Let's, let's do an update to the story. I think people would be 
would be really, especially in, in the Florida area where the, where the story ran originally, would be interested in seeing it. And worst case scenario is we get to hang out for a week or 10 days. So she said, okay, let's do it. So uh, Laura Heald, who's my creative partner with Straw Hat Visuals, and I had been in Germany at the World Athletics Championships. We got a rental car, drove down to Rome, and spent a week with Missy. And Missy and I, or Todd and I, or you know, some member of that group are in contact pretty much every other week on Facebook or on email or on a telephone call. So my entire professional life, I've been in contact with Missy. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful story. Um, one of the other stories that's really important to you is this ongoing series that you've been doing on Nebraska. You're born and raised there, but you often return there. And tell us about why that state and that community is so important to you and what the work is about that keeps you going back there. Because there, there are a lot of things that could, you know, take up your time and your attention but this is really special to you and really want to understand why that is. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because as we're recording this, it's a Saturday morning and on Monday I'm going to Nebraska for a week. I love the people. The land is is special to me. You know, I mean, my family is, I guess we're fourth or fifth generation Nebraskans. And I, even though I live in Florida now, if somebody asks me where I'm from, I always say Nebraska. I mean, it's just ingrained in me. When you, when you spent your whole life when you're from a small town particularly, I don't care where it is in the world, but when you're from a small town, you have a different sense of community than you do when you're from a larger town, I think. In the town I grew up in, I had 60 mothers and 60 fathers and 100 big brothers that were watching out for me all the time. I have a real pride in, in Nebraska. It's the western part of the state where, where I'm from originally. It's a rugged land. It's a strong land. It's a, it's a dangerous and challenging environment. Physically, uh, the temperature swings are massive. In the summer, it can be over 100 degrees for a consistent period of time. And in the winter, it can drop to 15, 20, 30 below zero. It's a land that it's arid. There's not a lot of water. It's an open land. There's, there's hills and, and bluffs and ridges that break up the landscape fairly regularly. But there's not very many trees. There's not a lot of people there. There are not a lot of towns. So it's just you in this big, open, vast space. You can see forever, and that gives you the ability to enjoy the place, for me, in a different kind of way. But first and foremost, I think that what I got from being in Nebraska and that I travel with everywhere I go in the world is that where I grew up, there was nothing that could harm me, nothing that wanted to harm me, maybe a few wild animals that I have to be cognizant of, but not really. So I grew up with a complete absence of fear. There was nothing in my environment that was threatening or challenging in a dangerous way. I didn't meet a person growing up that had a bias against me for any reason or that would not just welcome me because it's a big open community and everybody shares. When I say a big community, I mean it's a, it's a big space. Not very many people and everybody just gets along, young and old, you know, it's nice. So there's no, there's no place that I need to go or nobody I want to talk to that I'm not interested in hearing their stories. When you grow up, you know, in a town with no people in it or with very few people in it or a space without a lot of interchange, then, I mean, I, you can tell from listening to me ramble, I'm just happy to talk to anybody. The addition of multimedia, the ability to be able to capture video as a bells to stills is something you've really 
embraced. And the stuff that you've done, especially the video that you did recently with the with the D4, I thought were just wonderful examples of what's really possible. The technology is great, but I think ultimately it's what you do with it that makes the is what's more important. How is that changing your career, and what are your hopes to do with that that you may have not been able to do with just just stills, or how does it complement what you do with stills? Well, first, I want to say thank you for those kind words. It's really generous of you. I, I appreciate that feedback, and, and you're recognizing that that it is not. You know, I'm a fairly accomplished still photographer, and I could have, I think, run out at the end of my career just making still photographs if I was just trying to protect a job. And this goes back to the love and the commitment and the passion that we talked about in your very first question of the of the morning. First and foremost, with the DSLR technology. I now have good control of the camera in my hand for making videos. I can extend my vision physically as well as mentally and viscerally. I can't compare what I do to what a cinematographer does. The guys that are, you know, the ASC guys, they have a tremendous skill set. They've developed this craft and this sense of style and the form and the mechanics of making these pictures as long as well as their vision over decades of work. So I can't just walk in, pick up a, a, a video camera or a cinema camera and be there. I have to, if I want to make a, if I want to direct a production that, that requires that level, I need to have somebody that has commensurate skills with, with what my vision are. But what I can do with the DSLRs is I can make pretty good video and I can make video that complements the stills and the audio and I can do it with a realistic footprint. I have a tremendous respect for the people that are doing the big projects and the really expensive projects and the, the really fine, fine filmmakers that are out there. I, I love looking at their work, and I wish that some days I wish that I had the time and the resources to do that. But I think there's a lot of other stories that need to be given a voice, and the new technology allows me to do that. It's a smaller, more economically acceptable, accessible footprint. You know, for me to go out and do a a story, a four-minute story on Ted Kuzer. I can go with Laura and a couple cases of gear, four or five DSLR cameras and a handful of lenses, and we can we can do this whole package for seven or eight thousand dollars. And I can let three million people share what I saw with Ted Kuzer for that kind of an investment. And that's something that's never been able to happen before in the history of publishing or broadcasting. The internet and all of its the long tails of the net and all the different ramifications of the different electronic delivery means possible and the ability to do this work with some Apple software and a, a computer and a few cameras and a few lenses and, you know, some supports, you can just do so many more things. And so that's what's important to me. Now I can do this and tell these stories and bring this information home in a high-quality way for a budget that's affordable relative to what I need to be able to produce it for in order to share it. I'm not sure that I, there must be a, a much more succinct way to say that. I'm just not getting there. You know, it's hard to get funding to do some of these projects. And the DSLRs 
allow me to do these things in a really high quality fashion for a reasonable budget. Does that make sense? No, no, that makes perfect sense. Because the, the whole industry is changing. I mean, the, the magazine industry is changing. Newspaper industry is changing. And there's a lot of talk about how multimedia is going to play a role on that. But but big factor is how much it costs and how much these publications are willing to pay for that kind of content, if if at all. So I think that in some of the things that you said is that regardless of the choices that they're making, that the tools are there, that people can create the content and it's not prohibitively ex- as expensive as it was in the past, that, that if there's a story out there that you want to tell, you have the means to be able to do it. I think part of the, the challenge now is finding ways to make that happen, especially the distribution of the content. But you know, with YouTube and Vimeo out there, there there are options that just didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. And I think everyone is just trying to negotiate how you can create this content and not necessarily get rich by it, but be able to make enough money that you're able to duplicate it and do it again and again. Well, I think you just raised several important issues. First, monetizing the product is important for survival and for the ability to perpetuate the work. I also believe that if you're doing this work strictly for the money, you'll never be successful. If you do high quality work, you can make the money follow. That's one thing. Second thing is that magazines and newspapers, I believe, are in a hurry. And they're in a hurry because they're owned by corporate entities. And they're in a hurry because they have a responsibility to their shareholders and to their owners. But I believe in some way, that possibly they're ignoring the past. So the first time the New York Times printed, when you look at the New York Times now, it has to be one of the the biggest, most powerful papers in the world. It's well-respected, well-read, incredibly well-produced. I don't think that that there can be, at least not using the criteria I'd want to apply, there can't be a lot of discussion about that or disagreement. It's a great newspaper. But the first day that they published it, it didn't sell the number of copies that it has today. It didn't have the reach or the impact that it has today. That had to be developed through time. Same thing is true with multimedia. If you want this to be successful, you have to, have, you have, to, you have to do it. You have to put it in a place where people can see it. You have to promote it. You have to direct them to it. And you have to keep doing it for a while. You have to give them a chance. You can't look at You can't do a story once and say, oh, I only got 10,000 clicks. It's not worth it. Well, you know, it got 10,000 clicks this time, but if you did a good job, the, the same 10,000 clicks that you got the first time are going to come back and they're going to bring more people and there's going to be 20 and then 30 and then 40. And that's how you grow anything. There's word of mouth, there's promotions. You have to give this a chance to flourish. YouTube wasn't as big as it is now the first day it came out, nor was Facebook. Not, nothing was. So expecting, there has to be, you have to give anything you do some time to develop. Look at the NFL. I was just at a Super Bowl. It's an amazing production. Billions of people watch. But the first NFL championship game, how many people might have seen it? Not so many. Mm-hmm. But they, they've grown their product to be one of the finest franchises in world sports. You live in Southern California. Didn't the first McDonald's start out as a single restaurant in San Diego? Oh, uh, yeah, nearby, yeah. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, and now you can find one anywhere you go on the planet. <laughs> There's <laughs> lots of them. But they had to let it grow. That's just the way of, the, of that's just the way of things. You, 
you have to invest time, energy, and money in projects if you're going to let them survive. And that's, yeah. that's really where I'm at with, you know, and the technology is getting better. I mean, you look at the iPad, when you watch a multimedia or a short film on an iPad as compared to on, the, to on a computer screen that's coming straight off the web, what's well, an entirely different viewing experience? You know, the iPad's better to look at. For me, it's the pictures are sharper, they're clearer. You know, when you've downloaded the project in its entirety, it's it's there, it runs smoother, it doesn't get hung up. So you have all kinds of just different possibilities. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask my guests to recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. You've mentioned a lot of people already, but who would be the one person you would suggest for people to immediately go and, and check out and why? That's a really interesting question. And so many of my close friends and people I respect and admire are photographers. I can come up with a list of 30 people right off the top of my head that I think you would benefit from looking at their work on a regular basis. But I'm going to cheat as long as that's okay. Then I'm going to give you one of my all-time favorite photographers, and he's no longer with us. So, you know, that takes it out of I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to pick among my friends, <laughs> which is really hard to do for all kinds of reasons. So I would say Jean-Loup CF. And why? I'm not familiar with his work. He was a French photographer, passed away at, I believe it's say age 66. And he is a brilliant black and white photographer. He did a lot of landscapes and nudes for a while he did some i mean i think that the reason you want to look at his photographs is first of all just because they're brilliantly created they're done so well technically they're just superb visions i mean he's just a genius you spell the name j-e-a-n-l-o-u-p and then the the last name was is c-f it's s-i-e-f-f and he started his career before i was born shooting fashion and then he moved to Magnum. And, and Magnum, as you know, and, and I'm sure most of your viewers know, is the quintessential photo agency. I mean, when you're talking about style and grace and passion and commitment, these guys personified. I mean, it was, it was founded way back when by some names that I'm pretty sure you'll have heard of. Robert Kappa, Henri Cartier-Bresson, David Seymour, George Roger, the best photographers, photojournalists in the world working at the time, founded Magnum. And the agency continues this day, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I've got some very good friends at Magnum, David Allen Harvey, Eli Reed, just, I mean, so many people that do great stuff. But anyway, so CF lived in, in France, uh, in Paris, and he worked for Esquire, Glamour Vogue, Harper Bazaar, people like that. He did a lot of portraits of celebrities. His work is, he's best known for his work, I think, of dancers and nudes, but it just so much style, so much grace, so much classic. It's just brilliant photography. Jean-Luc CF. Well, I look forward to checking out his work. You'll love this guy. Look at his book called The Time Will Pass Like Rain. Oh, beautiful title. He is a thinking photographer's photographer. Oh, that's that's high praise. That's great. So where can people find out more about all the things that you're, that you're doing? www.billfrakes.com and www.strawhatvisuals.com. Straw Hat Visuals is the company I share with Laura Heald, who's my creative partner. We work together on music videos, multimedia productions, some different kinds of commercial work. We have a fairly active blog. It's not uh, hyperbolic, I don't think. We don't 
I don't get on very much and wax eloquent about what we're doing, but we, but we have a pretty good running commentary of the materials that, of things that we're doing. So you can see where we're at. You can follow us pretty precisely on that. Great. Well, thanks, Bill. It's uh, been a real pleasure to sit down and talk with you. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And I'm really, really uh, flattered and honored that you've added me to your collection because it's an impressive list. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.